Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jean-Pierre Desmet, the founding winemaker and former partner at Domaine d'Arlo in Nuit St. George. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. Very nice to see you. Thank you. So you had Belgian roots, but you grew up in Nice, where you were born in 46. That's right. I was born in Nice. Uh, I, actually, I was born in England for my parents' reasons. But uh, I went back to Nice uh, when being uh, six months old, and then I spent all my youth in Nice and left at the age of 20 to be a student in Paris. From an early age, you developed a passion for the outdoors. Nice is uh, located uh, between uh, sea and mountains, and so it's easy to be at sea uh, and in the mountains uh, the same day. And uh, so I started skiing uh, when being uh, four years old, but uh, only in the mountains, so with uh, the skins uh, and uh, no lift and so on. And then I did race a lot. So when being a student, I did race a lot and maybe more than I studied. But <laughs> And you met your future wife, who is also a skier. Yeah, yeah, we met, uh, we've been skiing in the same ski club in Paris. And so we did meet there and and skied a lot uh, together and raced uh, together as well. And uh, yes, that's where we met, in the mountains. And her name is Lilo. That's right. That is a nickname from Lise. And uh, she grew up in Paris. And then we moved to New Caledonia. So no more, no more ski, but back to the sea. And, uh, and we went to New Caledonia and, uh, and sailed a lot over there. A lot of diving as, as well, and um, so we spend a lot of time at sea at this time. And we spend there uh, six, seven years. So New Caledonia is in the South Pacific, kind of near Australia. Yes, that's, uh, let's say, uh, almost not really between, but a uh, triangle between uh, Australia, New Zealand, and New Caledonia, and that's just in the Southern Pacific. So that's a uh, French territory, and... Uh, so people uh, speak French, which was easier at this time. My English was not uh, very good. And uh, so we left France to go and visit the world. And we stopped by in, uh, in New Caledonia. <laughs> you set up an accounting consulting service, and then you also brought over people's boats. 
Yes. The delivery of boats uh, came afterward when we left New Caledonia and we went back uh, sailing with, uh, with boats. But when being in New Caledonia, I, I did create uh, an office of uh, accountancy. And, uh, and you actually sailed around the world like several times. Three times. So three big, large trips over the oceans from France to New Caledonia. The first long trip, a year long, and we had uh, our daughter who was born a year earlier, and so she was only one year old when we left uh, La Rochelle in West France. For one year, we have been sailing with Chloe as a baby, <laughs> so it has been great, really great. You were in your 30s at that time. Yes, that's right. 32 when leaving La Rochelle for the first time, yes. Before you left, you went and visited Jacques Seyss and Maurice Saint-Denis. Yeah, Jacques, uh, Jacques Seyss was a, a close friend of uh, Lilo. And before leaving to New Caledonia, we already went to visit Jacques in Maurice Saint-Denis. And so that has been my first uh, visit or contact with the wine, with the wine region even, uh, or, uh, and knowing more about the way of life of a winemaker. And so I thought, we have to come back. And so we did. It was uh, 71, before leaving to New Caledonia. And then went back in 77. I went back to visit Jack. Then uh, it has been the first vintage. October 77, the first vintage we had at Domaine du Jack. And we, we went there for, uh, for uh, one or two weeks and we stayed two months. You really liked it? Yes. So I have to ask you, because I was born in 77, and last year I had my 40th birthday, and I got together with some other people, and someone was nice enough to open a Domaine du Jacques, Clos Saint-Denis, 77. Wow. And I liked it, and I just have to ask you if you have any memories of the 77 harvest, and specifically of Clos Saint-Denis, because it has a personal tie-in for me. As far as I remember, it was cold. It was very cold. <laughs> and I did not think it could have been uh, such conditions to pick grapes. And, uh, but nevertheless, it was such a fun and such a, a pleasure, really a pleasure to be there and to share with, uh, with the other harvesters. Uh, at that time, every year, uh, they had uh, people from uh, New Zealand or Australia, but mainly New Zealand. And uh, so it gave a good atmosphere and a good ambiance in the team, and it was great, yes. And Jacques was very excited about winemaking. Uh, definitely, yes. Yes, and experimenting and trying to know more every year, yes. And he had a wide range of acquaintance. I mean, he knew a lot of people, both in the Rhone and in Burgundy and in other parts of France. Yeah, that's uh, the ski, uh, let's say the ski connection, the, through the ski, the racing ski, we met a lot of people uh, who later on became winemakers, such as uh, Alain Graillot in the Rhone. Uh, I met Alain uh, when training and racing uh, in the late 60s. He became a winemaker in 85 only, but uh, we were friends, yes. You actually helped out at Graillot a little bit, right? I did participate at the first vintage in the Gros Hermitage with Alain, yes, that's right. He called me and he said, uh, I have the opportunity of uh, making wine, finally. He was looking for that. He said, but uh, I need your help. 
I said with pleasure, but I already planned to go for the vintage at Dujac. He said, no, but uh, don't worry, everything is organized. Uh, Jacques, <laughs> let you be free and <laughs> you can come. And so this year I did almost two vintages because after being uh, 10 days very, very intense with Alain Graillot, I went back to Burgundy and that was a kind of uh, holidays for me, <laughs> being in a large team and uh, it was much easier and both were great, yes. 85 was a great, great memory for me. Speaking with Jacques in the past, it really seems like it was a group of friends. Definitely, yes. Yes, a group of friends uh, because of the ski and then it was because of the wine or through the wine, but uh, at the origin it was uh, with the ski. Uh, I met Jacques through Lilo, I met Lilo through the ski, I met Alain Graillot through the ski, I met a couple of others uh, as well, yes. And you did biking together. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of us and more and more because uh, in Burgundy there was a good group of uh, skiers and bikers and we did celebrate this year the 30th anniversary of Tour des Vignerons, which is a vintner's tour biking and so... 30 years on the road, we are biking always uh, around the 1st of May. Three days uh, biking and drinking, of course. <laughs> we are producers. So there was some Americans in there like Josh Jensen and then... Yeah, Josh uh, was at the beginning of this tour, the first years. And we still have, but Josh this year said, I won't go, I won't join you any longer, uh, but maybe he will. He also became a friend with Patrick Bees. Yes. I met uh, Patrick, uh, I think it was 77 or 78. My first uh, years in, uh, in Burgundy, my first vintages in Burgundy. And Patrick, for any reason, was a friend of Jacques because there was no biking and no skiing uh, reasons, but they were good friends already. And so I met Patrick at this time. And uh, since then, up to... Uh, up 2013, when he passed away, he has been a very, very close friend of mine, yes. He was different to any other person i ever known. He was a specific guy. We did a lot of things together. We traveled a lot. He encouraged me a lot when, uh, when it was not easy. He gave me a lot of advices. So did uh, Dominique Lafont as well. At the beginning, we shared a lot of things with Dominique and Patrick, and Patrick helped me a lot because he was so generous. And Patrick, uh, yes, uh, I lost uh, a very, very close and great guy friend, yes. You were actually there when he met Cheesa Bees. Yes. Patrick convinced me that we had to go. It was in uh, 96. We had to go to Japan to develop the business and the sales and, uh, and to promote our wines. I was hesitating, but uh, finally it convinced me, and we, we went, just the two of us, to Tokyo. One evening he told me, oh, I met, I have a, a girl who is translating for me, for the, 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 the people attending the parties and so on, and she's gorgeous, uh, I would like you to meet her. And so the day after we had a drink together, and a dinner, a famous dinner at La Tour d'Argent in Tokyo, and that's how it happened with, <laughs> between Patrick and Tisa. <laughs> And the year after, they're married. And the year after, uh, Hugo was born. So, Burgundy, in a way, is it's just a collection of families and people living here in a small, you know, relatively small area. And it's amazing how much of that 
community you kind of as you know a guy who didn't grow up here you got into in the late 70s and the 80s into the 90s mm -hmm. it really feels like you were part of that that fabric people are are very friendly in uh, in the area and uh, it has not been difficult for us let's say to be uh, adopted by the community and uh, and specifically of course Thanks to Jacques and Patrick, with a lot of other uh, producers, and uh, it became a very good group of friends. And for many, many years, we have had a, a dinner uh, every month, every single month, a dinner uh, with uh, between uh, 12 and 20 uh, people together in, uh, in a restaurant or at home, but mainly in a restaurant. And we managed to bring our bottles, and it, it was a great time, yes. So that was sort of the tasting group with Romier and... Yes, yes, Christophe, Dominique Lafon, uh, Véronique uh, Drouin, uh, they were there, yes. You were actually doing a lot of activities in the late 70s and 80s. What else were you up to in that period of time? Sailing. Uh, we spent almost three years sailing uh, across oceans uh, almost all around the world, so takes time. We have had uh, a long break, I mean professional break, and uh, we have had uh, 10 uh, sabbatical years, so without a proper job, let's say. So we had uh, small activities, but not really uh, serious, let's say. But yes, we were very active, very active. Uh, and then after these uh, 10 years, it was time to go back to work and of course, it was obvious that uh, winemaker was uh, what we wanted to be. And so we moved back to Burgundy uh, because we had the opportunity to help the insurance group of AXA to buy a property and then to, to manage, to be partner with them and to create the Domaine de l'Arlo, who did not exist at that time. The vineyard and the buildings belong to a family uh, who were negotiants, uh, Maison Jules Belin. And so this family's inheritance of Jules Belin sold separately the negotiant company and the vines and the buildings. And so what was for sale in 86 was the building and the, and the vines. The negotiant company called Jules Belin, still existing, was sold previously. And so we had to create not the vineyard and not the building. The building is mainly built in the, the 18th century, and the vineyard is uh, for centuries and centuries. But the domain itself did not exist at all. So we did create the domain de l'Arlo. Lilo knew one of the head guys at AXA Museum, the insurance company. Lilo's uh, sister. Lilo's sister was among the three or four main people uh, in the company, yes. We were talking about, uh, with them and for them, investing in the vineyards. And they already bought a chateau in Bordeaux. And they were going to invest more on a higher level. The first chateau was uh, Chateau Franmen, which is not a top chateau. Good one, but not a top chateau. And so it appeared that investing in the, for this kind of company was better to have a higher level of vineyards. And so they told me, so we don't know anything about Burgundy. We know quite a lot about Bordeaux, but not in Burgundy. If you, by chance, you have something 
happening uh, for sale in Burgundy, uh, we might be interested. And uh, that's how it happened. You became a partner in that business. Yes. They did own the land, but uh, creating Domaine de l'Arlo, we have uh, half and half shares, yes. The history of it was actually not that many owners. So there was Vino, and then Vino, they ended up selling to Jules Belen, who you mentioned. And then Belen, unfortunately, there was an automobile accident, and a number of the people in the family died. Yes, over the, the last uh, two centuries, it has been only two, two families. Uh, Vienna after the revolution, the French Revolution, up to the end of the 19th century, and then the Jules Belin and family up to the end, uh, almost the end of the 20th century. And uh, yes, it has been a car accident in Nuit Saint-Georges at railway crossing, uh, and uh, all the family uh, has been killed uh, by a train arriving at the same time. So six people of the family plus the nanny, seven people died in this accident. And then the, another part of the family took over. Uh, and it has been difficult. That accident happened in uh, 1933. Uh, part of the family took over up to the sale in 86. You actually live there in that house? Yes, for 20 years, yes. I stayed there for about two weeks in that house once because now... Oxa offers it as kind of a guest room to certain people, and I was lucky enough to stay there. So, you know, I've swum in that swimming pool, and I've cooked on that stove, and I've seen the kind of folies. There's kind of a... Yeah, petite folie, right? Yeah. Right, 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 right. And I can tell you, it feels like a good place. In that house, it feels like some real things went down, good things, like good parties. It just feels like that kind of house. Yes, uh, well, thank you, because I think uh, specifically Lido is not a stranger to that. Uh, she is very, very good to give uh, a good ambiance in a house, and she knows how to do that. And uh, when renovating, she has been very, very active uh, for that. And I think that uh, all the property, uh, I mean, out of the vines, but uh, all the property has around. So Arlo is in Premo. Yes. And the thing about Premo is that's a part of Nuit St. George, but a lot of, I think, Americans maybe aren't familiar exactly with what that means, that sector of it. So what does it mean in terms of wine? So the appellation of Nuit St. George, including the Premier Cru, is larger than the limit of Nuit St. George. And so in the south, it's extended to Premo, yes. Almost up to the limit of Comblanchien, because the last premier cru south is Claude Le Maréchal. So that's still Nuit Saint-Georges' premier cru, even though it's on the Promo uh, village. Arlo borders Claude Le Maréchal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is just a small road or uh, just in between. Both you and Mr. Mounier make white wine in Nuit Saint-Georges, along with some other people in that area. Specifically in Premo, it seems to be a little more common than other parts of Nuit Saint-Georges. Yes. Well, it's more common now, and uh, some other producers in, uh, in Premo, and also in Nuit Saint-Georges, yes. But altogether, there are very small areas, and uh, the production of white wine altogether in the Côte de Nuit is very small compared to the Côte de Bonne, definitely, yes. When you arrived, there was about a hectare of white vines there at Arlo. Yes, that's right. 
because one hectare with very old vines. And the, the white had a great success when starting, and I have to say it helped us to develop. It was very attractive, and, uh, and people loved the white. The red needs more time, of course, and so uh, after a couple of years, uh, I was not pleased at all with a spot, uh, La Gerbotte, south of Claude Larlo, and uh, I decided to pull out these vines because the red wine I was producing, I did not like. So I did replace with a white wine, yes, with Chardonnay. And not only Chardonnay, but a very small amount of Pinot Gris, we call Bureau in Burgundy. Because in the old part of the white, the one hectare you mentioned, it was already about 5% of surface planted with, uh, with Pinot Gris. And so I did the same in the new plantation. And was there some Chardonnay Mousquet? Yes, yes, that's, uh, I don't know enough about the grape varieties to be sure, but I have been told that the Chardonnay, uh, the old vines, a part of them was uh, Chardonnay Muscat, yes. So you did that replant in 93? 93 and 94, yes. So the vines that had been there had been there for decades already. They were like 50-year-old vines. Yes. Well, all together they were old. And then I did replace and replant in 98, 99, and 2000, uh, another uh, about a uh, hectare, but with Pinot Noir in the Claude Larlo. Jules Belen, had they been making a white wine, or had they been blending the white grapes in with the red grapes? Or I never tasted, I never saw any bottle, but uh, I was told that they were producing white wine, yes. And you found some early acclaim with the white, in terms of people seem to like it in the market? Uh, yes, that helped us. The white wine of the Claude Larrois is very good, <laughs> I have to say. The soil and the Chardonnay uh, apparently goes well uh, there, and uh, so it was uh, definitely not really my influence because uh, my experience uh, in winemaking has been uh, only with Jacques and he was not a white wine producer. And uh, so I have a very small experience of white wine. So it, it was the soil, the place, and the old varieties of Chardonnay. And also, I have to say, the two first years, a uh, previous trainee I met at uh, Dujac, uh, Peter Lesky, an Australian guy who is now a very good friend of ours, came to help us uh, at Larlo. Uh, and he was uh, already uh, a winemaker, and he did work at this time with Gosset in Australia. And I learned a lot from him, specifically, let's say not only, but specifically for the white wines. And we made the first two vintages together, and so it has been a very good help. And he talked to you about how to press white wine. Yes, definitely. Not only, but also... and. I already learned for the pressing of red wines at Dujac because Jacques was very concerned by the pressing. And uh, when pressing the reds, we were always under the press with a glass tasting the, the wine. So I did, uh, I did learn uh, how to press white grapes with Peter Lesky. And, uh, but not only taught me how important it was uh, to keep the freshness in the must and in the wine when harvesting, pressing, uh, and fermenting. And so I never forgot that when making white wine afterwards. And somebody else who was there early with you was Didier Fournoral. 
Yeah. Didier Fornerol uh, was already there. He was, let's say, the team manager of the four people, uh, including him, still there when we arrived. When we arrived and we bought the property, there were no, no stock, no one bottle in the cellar, no files, no clients, nothing, but a team of people working in the vineyard. And uh, Didier was the chief of the team. And then he became my uh, vineyard manager, assisted by Christophe Morin, uh, who was a vineyard manager at Domaine du Jacques. And um, Christophe was a, a great, great person, a great guy. And uh, he has been helping us a lot because his knowledge about vineyard was great. And we shared a lot of things together. And uh, at this time, I knew more or less how to make a wine. But uh, I was not that good for the vineyard. I have ideas, general ideas, but uh, not specific ideas. My background was definitely not in the vineyard. And uh, so I was lucky enough to have Christophe as a consultant, let's say, but spending a lot of time uh, with us and uh, giving advices and, and sometimes working with us as well. Unfortunately, Christophe passed away in a, in a motorbike accident. While he was there, you converted the estate over to organics. Yes, it has been with Christophe, but it was not his idea. It has been my idea the first year. We bought the domain in the late 86. So the first year has been uh, hesitating and uh, learning a lot. And uh, in 88, we started organic culture. So it has been not 100% the first year at all. But we started the process in 88. And at the beginning, Christophe, uh, it was much more work in the vineyard. He thought the team won't accept and uh, it was different. It was difficult. Once he told me, but your team won't accept to plow by hand the vineyard. I said, let's start, let's test and uh, we'll see. But uh, we'll have to go that way. It's so important. and so. Afterwards, he did and he managed the organic culture, definitely. But at the beginning, he was not, not that fan of that. Yes. Christoph was somebody who knew a lot about vine material and different clones, and he knew a lot about pruning. Oh, yes, yes. And I have to say, we started the Selection Massal with Christophe. He was a very, very good uh, in the vineyard, yes. He, he knew definitely very well how to work in the vineyard. And he knew the material. And so the first plantation, including the whites we mentioned in the Claude Larlo, have been planted with clones because I was not ready with my Selection Massal. And I started planting our own Selection Massal in uh, 2000 in the Claude Larlo. And it has been a good success. And afterwards, every plantation has been done with our Selection Massal. Yes. And how did Christophe approach the pruning with Arlo? Christophe was uh, very concerned by two things, as much leaves as possible and as much air as possible, which could seem contradictory, but it could work depending on the, the way you are pruning. And so we did experiment a new way of pruning with Christophe, uh, which were definitely not common at all uh, in Burgundy in these times. That was in the late 80s. And uh, in these times, that was a guillot, a guillot simple or guillot double at least. And that's it. Very few people were, um, were pruning uh, differently. And uh, with Christophe, we started testing other ways and, and horizontal. It was horizontal. Yes. There were leaves 
everywhere. Branches and leaves everywhere, all around the wire, along the wires, and there were no holes between the plants. Even though the plants are planted uh, one meter from each other, in the Guyosin, very often there is a lot of leaves together, and then a hole with nothing, and the other plant, a lot of leaves, and a hole with nothing. And so we develop the leaves and the branches all along the wires. And so there were less leaves together, more air going through. And so to me, it was a good progress, yes. Something else you had done is you had gone to analogy school at the University of Dijon. Uh, yes, I went uh, in 86 at the University of Dijon in analogy. And that's where I met uh, Anne-Claude Lefleve and uh, Anne Gros. And we were uh, a team together working, uh, the three of us, at the same place in the lab for the experiment and so on. And we became very close friends with Anne-Claude, immediately very, very good friends and, uh, and our families as well. So we did a lot of things out of the wine together with uh, her family and our and uh, up to the end. We were, we were very, very good friends, yes. Did she affect your decision-making to go into organic early and then later the estate was transferred into biodynamic? Not for the organic uh, way, but definitely for the biodynamic, yes. She did introduce me to that. I did not know at all what it was. And I was uh, really hesitating in the early uh, 90s when she started in Puligny at the Domaine Le Fleuve. And uh, uh, we were talking a lot together about that. And uh, I was not convinced at this time. And I've been lucky enough to participate to a lot of tasting at Domaine Le Fleuve with her and a couple of other friends between biodynamic and uh, organic and uh, conventional uh, ways. And uh, finally, I thought, yes, that's the right way. And so we started in uh, 98 uh, in Domaine de l'Arlo, yes. Well, that's right around the time that she took it full of biodynamic as well, 98. Yeah. What was she like as a person? Well, she was amazing. <laughs> she was, uh, uh, it's difficult to describe her, but she had such a lot of energy and she was so charming and uh, everybody loved her. She was really a great, great person. And... She was sincere, she was uh, pure, she was uh, uh, focused on, uh, on her ideas and, uh, and go up to the end. Uh, and she, it's a big loss, it's a really a big loss. When she tasted wine, what did she tend to talk about? In what way did she taste? She was maybe not the best taster I ever met, but she did taste well in a way, and she was not very good to recognize wines, but technically she was very good. And I may say she was looking for purity in the wines. Mainly that was the first and main things she was uh, looking for. And sometimes, she, uh, no, no, there is something wrong with this wine. And quite often it was a uh, non-organic wine, <laughs> I have to say. But it's difficult to say. I know it's a different subject, but in a lot of ways, when I think of Arlo and the wines, what I think of is a certain level of purity, the way that the fruit expresses. Thank you, uh, because that's what I was looking for, <laughs> definitely as well, yes. 
Yes, it's important to me to have cleanliness. And uh, I have to say, I have two times bretanomyces in my wines and I was horrified. And I did not sell the wines because I couldn't. They were not pure, they were not clean, they were... So that kind of things, it's not only the bretanomyces, but uh, yes, I, I tried to make uh, pure and sincere wines, yes. So you pretty much, with Didier, sort of designed the winemaking facility, right? Because there was really nothing there. There were only uh, very, very old and not in good condition vats in an ugly place. So we used uh, another building to create the winery. And uh, yes, it has been completely uh, new, with new vats, new press, new materials, and the same uh, process as it is at Dujac. So I was really, and I still think that it's a very good way uh, to have the grapes uh, as intact as well as possible in the vats. Uh, it's definitely not to go through a pump or whatever. And so to me, it's natural gravity or a crane or uh, something, but definitely not a pump. And so we designed the, the winery in that spirit and uh, to be as gentle as possible with the grapes. I have to say that um, making uh, eight vintages over 10 years with Jacques Sess, I was convinced, and making so many tests with him, with a uh, wall cluster or 100% distemmed, that I was definitely convinced when arriving at, at Larlo that the uh, world cluster was more the style of wine I loved and I wanted to produce. And so it's even more and much more important to have uh, the grapes not touched, not scratched. As they are in the vineyard, they should be in the, in the vat because uh, if they're scratching the stems, that's uh, terrible. So one of the reasons you liked whole cluster was that it also meant whole berry because you weren't messing up the berries when you're pulling out the stems. Ah, definitely. The point is not the stems. No, it's the whole berries. It's uh, the process of starting the, the fermentation inside the berries and then opening. And uh, it makes the process of fermentation much smoother than uh, if you have, uh, have the vat uh, with juice. Uh, in that case, we have maybe uh, 20% or less or 10% of juice underneath the, the grapes that lets the fermentation start and then it, uh, it starts inside the berries. And that's the point. It's not the fact that having the, the stems, the stems have no interest. On the contrary, the stems take uh, acidity, they take color, they take alcohol. So the stems are not good. Uh, David Duban make a very good and very, very interesting experiment when distilling by hand the grapes, and so the berries were wall, and it made a great wine with that. And the interest of the wall cluster is to have the wall berries. Something Jacques liked to do was a couple of days of cold maceration before the fermentation started. The fermentation would tend to start somewhat slowly. It starts very slowly. It takes three, four days to start, and then. When it started, because of the wall cluster, because of the air or the, the gas in between the, the berries and the clusters, it goes slowly, much more slowly than uh, if it's completely distemmed. And so the process is, to me, is smoother and uh, go much longer. And the fermentation does not go as high 
because the, the gas in between and because the process, the sugar is delivered more slowly. So it makes, a, to me, a much better cinetic, as we say. So the time and the way the fermentation is happening is better. It's more difficult. It's more complicated. It's not dangerous, but it's not as safe as having a short fermentation. But to me, it's more interesting as a result. And it's a question of style of wine you want to produce. There is not only one way to make good wines. There are styles you will prefer, and that's the case for me with the wall cluster. I do prefer that. And I imagine you did some punching down rather than pumping over. I I hate pumping. <laughs> yes, we always punch down, and the first punching down have always been made by foot to fill the vat, to fill the grapes. The only time I am pumping the, not the wine, it's just the must, the juice, is that when the vat is full with grapes, as I told you, there is a 10 to 20% of juice underneath. And so to make a, what we call a remontage, just to make together and to put some juice on the grapes. But uh, otherwise, uh, no pump. No. What kind of vats did you use for fermenting? Were they wood or cement? No, no, they were not wood. It has been such a nightmare the first year at Larlo with his old vat in bad condition, uh, a lot of rot. It was not, uh, and I said, no, I don't want wooden vats. And so when designing the new winery, I decided to use a stainless steel uh, vats and uh, well insulated. So there are stainless steel. Not sure it's the best way, but I've been pleased with them. When would mallow typically happen for the red wines? Typically, it's the spring after the harvest. Uh, at Larlo, it was earlier, generally speaking, before Christmas. And I think that's because of the world cluster. I don't. I have no explanation, no, no chemical, technical explanation for that. But I really think that it comes because of the world cluster. Discussing with friends with Patrick Bees, with Jacques Sess, with Alain Graillot. All of us are using mainly wall clusters, and we, we have early mallows. So that's why I think there is a relationship between the early mallows. And people say that it's better if it's later. I don't know. They are going through when they want. So you tasted a lot at the press when you would press red wine? Uh, yes. Yes. Each time it goes up, the juice comes, and uh, I have a glass. So I spend my time underneath the press when pressing, yes. Red and white. And now I'm uh, making wine. We mentioned uh, Didier Fornerol, who has been my uh, vineyard manager for uh, 13 years. He became afterwards uh, a winemaker himself, having back vineyards from his, his family. And when leaving uh, Domaine de l'Arlo, uh, I went to visit him and he convinced me to give a hand uh, and to, <laughs> to help him for the vintage. And that's what I did, uh, starting with the vintage 07 and uh, still there. And the uh, 18th vintage going to be with me again. <laughs> and so talking about that, I am there for the vintage every year uh, with Didier, and we are just the two of us in the winery when, when the winemaking. It's small estate, it's 6.5 hectares. 
And uh, so we are, the both of us, with a glass under the press each time it goes up. And uh, so that means for one cuvee, one press, 10 glasses, 10 times, about. It's one of a lot of important points of the winemaking. <laughs> there are many, many important points. The pressing is one of them. Yes. Would you then put the press wine back into the wine or did you keep it separate or? We mix everything still the beginning. So right away you blend it back Right in. away, right away. In the vat, we put the wine in called the cuve de débourbage to let the heavy sediment go down before barreling. And when we think it's no longer good enough to be in the, in the main wine, we stop the pressing. And you preferred Raymond Cooperage? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. No, because uh, they are not the only, the only good coopers in Burgundy or in France or wherever. There are a lot of uh, very good coopers. But yes, because I, uh, with Jacques again, we did buy our own wood, let dry one year at Larlo, one year at Dujac, and then deliver the, the staves to the cooper. And so it was too complicated to have different coopers. And so Raymond, who, Mr. Raymond, before uh, he retired, was already our cooper with Jack. And so when he sold uh, his uh, workshop, we followed the new people. And they were kind enough to let us deliver our own staves. And when making our, our barrels, we were there to be sure that it was the way we wanted them not to be made because they knew how to make it, but to burn, to burn the wood. And every year we were delivering the staves and uh, spending uh, a couple of hours discussing with the workers and the people uh, to, to be sure that uh, we agreed. Light to medium, not too light, because if too light, it gives some green, uh, green flavors, uh, which I don't like, but uh, definitely not overtoast. In a way, it, to me, it's somewhat amazing that a guy who, I mean, I know you worked in business and accounting, and I imagine that's a lot of details, but, you know, you were kind of an adventurous guy, skiing, sailing around the world a lot, but it seems like your focus on this, on the wine thing, was like laser beam focus on the details. Uh, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> One of the things in the wine, to be a, let's say, good winemaker, is to be consistent. And uh, to be consistent, that means you have to take care of the details. You can't just uh, think that luck uh, will help you. And uh, to me, it's much more important to be consistent every year, every vintage, than uh, being uh, the king of the region uh, once uh, <laughs> every 10 years. One of the things Jacques Sace liked to do was to bottle a little earlier rather than bottle a little later. And he liked to do that to preserve fruit. When did you like to bottle? Definitely not too late. Yes. Afterwards, it depends on the on the vintage, depends on, on the wine uh, we have in the barrels. Yes, altogether, I would prefer earlier than later. But yes, it depends on the vintage. Talking about the red wines, I never bottled before 13 months after barreling. 
and the latest has been 18, 19 months. So it's in between. Generally speaking, it, it happened uh, between January and, uh, and April. You had a couple of monopoles. You had the Clos Arlo and then you had the Clos Foray Saint-Georges. Yes. Clos Arlo had one sort of character and then Clos Foray Saint-Georges kind of another. And how would you characterize that? Yes, they are very different. The distance between these two vineyards are, is about uh, 800 meters. They are on the same, more or less in the same slope, more or less the same soil, apparently, but very different. And uh, Claude Forest Saint-Georges is more muscular, is more powerful, is darker every year. The same character, depending on the vintage, but always the same character versus uh, Claude Larlo, which is always more elegant, finer, lighter in color. Uh, let's say one is maybe more, more in the earth, Claude de Forêt Saint-Georges, and, uh, and uh, the other one, Claude Larlo, is more in the air and more aerial, um, more subtle. And yes, they are different. And I can't explain why, but as a result, I will pour two glasses of the same vintage in front of you before tasting, you will know which is which, just because of the color. Every year, whatever the vintage is, it has been always the same thing. And the character, the general character of the two vineyards is always the same. One is more powerful, the other one is more elegant. And how did they develop in the bottle, typically? I have to say that I have been wrong in my... <laughs> In my appreciation at the beginning, and I thought that because of the power, of the color, of everything, I thought that the Claude Forest Saint-Georges will last and develop much more and longer than the Claude Larlo. I was wrong. Claude Larlo lasts at least as well and maybe better than the Claude Forest Saint-Georges. And I have to say that Lilo said that and preferred the Claude Larlo since the beginning. And I did prefer the, the Claude Forest Saint-Georges at that time because of the ability of aging longer. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. Did you handle the Le Forêt differently than the Claude Arlo in terms of the winemaking? Or? Ah, yes. Yes. I thought you were asking me about the work in the vineyard. Not, not really, but uh, in the winemaking. Yes, definitely, yes. The Claude Larlo, uh, generally speaking, spent less time in the vat. Claude Larlo was bottled, generally speaking, earlier than the Claude Forest Saint-Georges. Uh, yes, it was important to keep more freshness because of the lightness of the Claude Larlo. To me, it was important. Yes, it was different. We did punch down more, the, generally speaking, again, more the Claude Forêt than the Claude Larlo. We have to be very gentle with the Claude Larlo, very subtle. What had drawn you to those crews in the first place? What had drawn you to Premo and those monopoles when you advised Oxa to make the purchase? I have to say it was just the opportunity. I did not know Premo at this time. I did not know. I, I heard the name of Premo because another friend of mine, Ted Lemon, had a car accident in the village when we were training together in the early 80s at Dujac. So I heard the name of Promo because of that, but otherwise, I did not know Promo. No, it was not a choice, definitely not. You know, it was almost as difficult in this time to find a vineyard as it is now in Burgundy, in, in Côte d'Or. And uh, so it has been just the opportunity. 
it happened in the Patrick B's uh, winery. And uh, there was an event uh, organized uh, around wines again uh, with a lot of uh, growers from a lot of parts of France. And uh, Patrick told me, uh, just come. I said, but I'm not a producer. I was not at this time. I was just helping Jacques in Moray. And uh, Patrick said, it, this event happened every year, but this year it's uh, at my place. So uh, you come. So I did. And I met François Fevelet, and uh, François knew that I was looking for a vineyard to purchase. And uh, he told me, oh, my parents uh, maybe know uh, somebody who is uh, selling. And that's how it happened. But it was very rare, and uh, we have been very lucky to have this opportunity, thanks to Patrick and François. Later, you were able to purchase for Domaine d'Arlo, Romani Saint-Vivant Grand Cru, and then also Les Souchots, Vaughan, Premier Cru. Yes, that's right, yes. My partners, uh, AXA, and I thought as well, but uh, they were <laughs> paying. thought that it would have been a good thing to be out, not only in Nuit Saint-Georges, Appellation, but to develop a little bit further. And to find the Grand Cru, and the closest Grand Cru was in Vaughan Romanée, and I have been lucky enough to buy a quarter of an hectare of Romanée Saint-Vivant in 1990. It's uh, just almost in front of the cross of Romani Conti, just a road between uh, l'Arlo parcel of Romani Saint-Vivant and uh, Romani Conti. Yes, it's uh, well located and uh, almost one hectare of uh, Les Suchots in 92, early 92. So, yes. How was it like for you to vinify Vaughan Cruz? Uh, <laughs> frightening. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was not relaxed at all. We we used to make two harvests because uh, the vineyards in the Claude Larlo and Claude Forest Saint Georges were superb. They were old but very well maintained, and the people before us took care very very well of the vineyard. That was not really the case of the Romane Saint Vivant, so it was not that easy, and so we more or less. Every year we did two harvests to eliminate the grapes I did not think was good enough to be a Grand Cru. And we have to work a lot in the soil as well because, uh, because it was difficult, yes. But afterwards it, it was not that different, but uh, we had only one Grand Cru and it was a, a kind of a flagship of the domain. And so it was... Not relaxing, definitely, but uh, finally it worked. And I have been very lucky buying the vineyard in 1990, and the first vintage has been 91, and 91 has been a good success for, for Larlo. The wines were produced in this uh, specific difficult vintage because of the hail, because of the small quantities and a lot of different things was not easy, and uh, I think we have been successful. It has been not every year, but uh, in 91 we have been, we did produce good wines, and the Romane Saint-Yvon 91, I think, is the best wine I produce at Larlo, yes. Obviously, Dujac was working with a different set of crews, but 91 is the year that he chose to de-stem the production, and how did you approach 91? I did not de-stem as much as, uh, as Jacques did, but I did this time, definitely, but I don't remember exactly how much and which cuvee, but, uh, but I did this time. I did this time. The very young vines, because 
It has been frost, deep frost in winter time in 85 and 86 all around France, but including Burgundy. And a lot of vines died in uh, 85 and 86. And so when arriving in 87, we had to replant a lot. And so all the bottom of Claude de Forest Saint-Georges has been replanted in uh, 87, a small part, 88 and 89. And so these young vines started producing in uh, 91. And so this particular vineyard has been 100% distemmed, yes. So it has been the, a year where I distemmed, and maybe more than others, but definitely not uh, 100% of all the cuvées. I think that uh, Claude Larlo was uh, 100% wool cluster. And you like to sort in the vineyard? Yes. Yes, I think it's very important not to have uh, bad things in the bucket. And then in the in the bins, and then in the vat, and uh, so I thought it was more important to sort. Our team was uh, trained to help the pickers to sort themselves before putting the grapes into the bucket, and uh, so I never had a sorting table. I had a vibrating table, so we had two people just uh, checking on this table. And we had a small table on the tractor as well. So the small bins on the shoulder or the, the small cases were put uh, there and, uh, and sorted, kind of sort, before. Wow. I mean, it's not everybody who does it that way. No, but no sorting table. Back at the winery. Yeah. So it could just go right in. Yeah, directly to the vat, yes. And as soon as possible. What was it like working sous show? Sucho has been uh, has been difficult as well. The soil again was uh, not in good condition, uh, and it took a couple of years to understand the vineyard. I will say it has been more difficult than the Romanée Saint Vivant. And the first year, I did not label as Sucho the '92 vintage. It has not been uh, any Sucho, but uh, Von Romanée Premier Cru only because I was not pleased with the result and then starting with the 93. But uh, it took a couple of years to more or less understand this vineyard. But afterwards, in the late 90s, I became pleased. Nuit St. George has some different sectors, and part of Nuit St. George borders Vaughan, but Premo is not that part. So Premo is closer to the Hill of Corton, that side of Nuit St. George. And... Now you're working Vone crews, like really in the heartland of Vone, mm-hmm. right? In that same kind of neighborhood as Richbor and Romney Conti. And what did you see as the differences between Wheat St. George fruit and Vone fruit? I can't say there is a difference in the fruit themselves, but definitely in the wine. The flavors, mainly the flavors and the structure of the wines of Vaughan are completely different to the ones from the classic Nuit Saint-Georges. I say classic because I don't think Claude Larlo is a classic. Claude de Forest Saint-Georges is a classic Nuit Saint-Georges, definitely. But I, I think Claude Larlo is not a classic. It's more, it has more a, a Vaughan touch than a Nuit touch. And uh, maybe not in the flavors, but Definitely in the structure. The elegance of Claude Larlo is closer to Vaughan Romanet than the normal classic Nuit Saint-Georges. And the flavors uh, in Vaughan are, uh, to me, more uh, 
white than uh, red or black in Nuit Saint-Georges for the flavors. It's more flowery than fruity. And the structure, of course, is a delicatesse. And the smoothness of the wines of Vaughan is, is not the same in Nuit Saint-Georges. Yes, they are different. The sweep of vintages that you saw late 80s into mid-2000s is kind of the climate change vintages. And when people look back, they kind of say maybe that was the period, especially I think 03 was so hot and dry, but people sometimes take it back to 90. So what was your experience of that sweep of vintages? What I noted, as everybody did, uh, we did harvest earlier. Slowly and slowly, but earlier, definitely the average is much earlier than it used to be. And uh, we had more mature grapes, definitely. In the late 80s, it was common, normal, to use sugar to chaptalize the wines because we needed to. Not every year, but almost. It was not specifically bad or it was almost normal. Uh, now, very, very rarely. So to me, that's a main change and illustrates the fact that the grapes are much riper and the climate changed. Uh, whatever the reason is, uh, it did change, yes. What were vintages that really stand out in your mind? I mean, you already mentioned about 91, but thinking back over the time, what are ones that were striking to you? 90 was a, was a great vintage. It's not my favorite because they were too heavy, to my point of view. But definitely the wines are very good and still very good and aging very well. So, yes. And then, difficult to say because it has been underrated or not very well appreciated vintages who did produce great wine with a lot of pleasure, not able to age that long, but so good to drink. So... What is the criteria of, of a great wine or of a good wine? That's difficult to say. If it is the ability of aging, 92 is definitely not a great vintage. But the pleasure we had drinking the 92s as an example, it's to me, is better than the 90s. So it's difficult to say, but I think we have had a, a range of great vintages in the 2000s, better than in the 80s and 90s. I love the 98s. To me, it's a great vintage. 2002, uh, 05, of course, but still not uh, ready. And then uh, almost everything after 2010. Just like Jacques Say said, Dujac, you mentored a lot of people at Arlo. A lot of people came and did harvests, sometimes Americans. And who were people that came by that you spoke to about wine that have stayed in your memory over the years? I'm pleased you asked me this question because uh, that has been my credo uh, at Larlo. I always had uh, trainees for vintage and I loved sharing with them, not teaching because that was not really the goal. The goal was sharing and exchanging. Difficult to mention names because I will forget something, somebody I, I, I loved. Difficult, but uh, definitely Blair Walter in uh, New Zealand. Another person who is not a winemaker at all and was not is Peter Lim. Peter Lim is uh, maybe the best tester I ever met. And 
Of course, Olivier Lorich has been a trainee before being my assistant and managing the domain with me. A lovely person and talented winemaker. And uh, he left Larlo and now he's in Sud Ardèche and making very good wines there with uh, Florence's wife. They're nice person, very nice persons. One of the things that's sort of striking about your career is how you didn't really set out with a plan. You just sort of set out with an idea to enjoy life. And then doing that, you ended up making some really good wines. I mean, with a lot of attention and care. And so I don't mean to not include that, but it's kind of amazing how, because I think a lot of times when I speak with people, you know, they're the children of another vigneron. There was a path and they followed that path. Or a lot of times in a new world, it's a very directed choice. They really set out to say, I'm going to make wine. Um, but you, it just feels like you just kind of went at life with gusto and it worked out pretty well. <laughs> I don't know how it feels to you. No, that's true. Yes, I never had any plan uh, of any career or whatever. Uh, yes, uh, you, you are right. <laughs> what you said is right. And uh, I just followed the inspiration. And people as well, the relationship uh, with people. And talking about wine, uh, it's a passion. Uh, it's a passion Jacques Sess gave to me. And because Jacques taught me not only how to make a wine, a good wine, but also and mainly the wine itself. We shared so many great bottles, or not great, but so many bottles together when working together. And so I learned the wine itself as uh, something to drink and to taste and to analyze. And so it became a passion. Uh, I'm not a heavy drinker. I drink uh, with a great pleasure, but I love wine. I love wine. And that comes from Jack at the beginning, then with other, other friends, other people uh, sharing a lot of things. But uh, at the beginning, it has been uh, like that. So wine making became a passion. And not only the winemaking, but the way of life, being outside, being uh, inside the cellar, but outside in the fields, and uh, definitely in the countryside and not in a big city. I did know what I did not want to do, but <laughs> but I did not know what I wanted to do. So it has been uh, just meeting people and uh, following the inspiration, and uh, that's how it happened. And uh, and when, when leaving Larlo, I did not know at all what I was going to do. And uh, visiting uh, Didier Fornerol, uh, just it happened like that. And since then, I don't spend all my year long uh, with Didier at all. I am full-time with him uh, during the vintage. But uh, then it's uh, quite rare. I'm going to taste, going to give a hand for uh, racking or bottling. But uh, one of the point of my life now it's uh, making wine with Didier Fornerol yes what have you seen working with those wines have you made other realizations working with Didier I did not change anything because Didier knew exactly how to make wine and these wines before 2007 were already very good I did not want to change anything just to give a hand and to be part of the of the world <laughs> of the wine world and uh, when retiring, uh, so it was uh, just for fun or pleasure. Uh, maybe two people in the winery, let's say knowledgeable people in the winery is better than only one. And so uh, we had more time 
to focus on small things, on details, as you mentioned. Uh, maybe I, I bring that. Take care of the details. But I did not change anything in the winemaking. I learned from Didier when he was at Larlo. Uh, I think he learned from me as well. And uh, he was uh, making his wines mainly with the wall clusters far before I arrived with him. For Jean-Pierre de Smet, wine is something to be shared, both as a liquid and before that. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Jean-Pierre de Smet was the founding winemaker and a partner at Domaine d'Arlo in Nuit Saint-Georges, in Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode. I couldn't have developed many of the questions I asked in this interview without having first read winehog.org. That's winehog, H-O-G, dot O-R-G, by Steen Ullman, as well as the writings of Clive Coates. For example, the book My Favorite Burgundies, which he published in 2013. I would recommend those resources to you if you would like to know more about the Domaine d'Arlot and what Jean-Pierre de Smet accomplished there. This episode also came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family, who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years. Thank you also to Daniel Jonas, who is the person that arranged for me to stay at the Domaine d'Arlo several years ago. L'Arlo was the name of a stream. That's right. An underground river flowing out at the bottom of the Claude L'Arlo and joining another river and, uh, and another river and to the Saône and then to the sea. And because of the river, underground river, the place has always been called Larlo. The vineyard itself has been called Larlo because of the river, but for the people of the village, Larlo is this place. <laughs>